new bigger convention centre is one of the main projects announced as part of the blueprint for the Centre of Christchurch. At the same time, the government is pushing ahead with discussions for an international conference venue in Auckland with the preferred developer, Sky City. But this Radio New Zealand Insight programme asks if there is the demand and what sort of competition would new facilities face from rival established and new venues in Australia. For a number of years, experts have called for the construction of an international convention centre. They argue New Zealand is missing out on larger conventions and the huge earning potential that goes with them. The preferred developer for an international convention centre in Auckland, Sky City, speaks of a potential annual contribution to the local economy of $90 million a year. The number of international meetings has increased over the last decade. International convention numbers have grown from just over 5,000 to over 10,000 in that period. The feeling has been that we've been missing out uh, on that substantial uh, sector. Conventions do bring money, they do bring jobs and they do bring opportunity. The argument is that it's the large international conventions that we just haven't been able to attract to this country because we haven't had the right facility. But there is huge competition overseas already and in Australia large facilities in many cities are already being upgraded and expanded. Will the demand be there for bigger centres in New Zealand? And what is needed to make a convention centre attractive to potential overseas visitors? I'm Philippa Tolley and this insight goes to three Australian cities to look at some of the competition to the key government's proposed convention centre. The air train, which takes you from the airport quickly into the centre of Brisbane, is an example of the infrastructure which helped the state capital secure the meeting of G20 nations in 2014. Australia's Prime Minister described the meeting as an opportunity to showcase the city to the rest of the world and reap the economic rewards. Directly into the Brisbane economy, this will be an injection of a considerable amount of money. We're talking about $20 million in hotel accommodation alone, around $30 million in all of the services that need to be sourced locally to make a major event like this happen. And that's before you get to things like the associated tourism and retail benefits with so many people in town all at the same time. But such a meeting doesn't come cheaply. The federal government has set aside a budget of 370 million Australian dollars. Not all are as enthusiastic as Julia Gillard. Letters to the local paper the day after the announcement give a flavour of some people's thoughts. What will the average resident gain from the city hosting G20? The inconvenience the US President's travelling circus creates is enough in itself without the other disruptions from other peacocks and their security. So, the travelling cocktail party's coming to town. Out'll come the token koala and kangaroo and a drive past the big pineapple in the hope that hordes of tourists will visit our shores only to find our basic accommodation costs more than quality accommodation in Europe. Has the Prime Minister asked the residents of Brisbane if they want this held in their city? Who is going to pay for it? The G20 meeting will be held in the multi-award winning Brisbane Convention Centre which sprawls alongside two art galleries and a museum on the city's south bank close to the river. The first stage of this huge venue was built on the site developed for the World Expo in the late 1980s. The air train includes a stop right at the Convention and Exhibition Centre. The centre runs 1,300 events a year. They range from shows such as this one, vintage clothing, to concerts and trade exhibitions. 
In the last year, the centre attracted 140 conferences and more than 20 of those were international. The centre's operators say the numbers have never gone backwards. The venue is big, it covers two blocks. Its main hall can handle as many as 8,000 people if exhibition space is added in as well. There are more than 40 meeting rooms of various sizes and lobbies for socialising and several other auditoriums. Floors are colour-coded from the carpet to the signs to help people find their way around. The exhibition areas can play host to events from gift to truck shows and horse events. The centre operators say it contributes $200 million a year to the Brisbane economy. But development hasn't stopped there. Demand for what are described as boutique spaces, catering to smaller groups of up to 600, led to the opening of a second stage at the start of this year, at a cost to the state of $140 million. Facilities wanting to attract visitors are normally keen to speak about their venues, but while staff were happy to show me around the brand new facilities, the management of the Brisbane Convention Centre banned any recorded interviews. The convention marketing arm of the City Council would not make themselves available to speak either. But on the other side of the river, the Royal International Convention Centre, home to Queensland's agricultural show for more than 100 years, is happy to show off the redevelopment of heritage storage buildings, described as previously being just a big old shed. On a tour of the building work, the Chief Executive of the Royal National Agricultural Association, or RNA, Brendan Christou, explains how the organisation was keen to move from just exhibitions into conventions as well. So this building is $59 million, which um, you know, compared to some of the budgets around for other convention centres is, is quite lean. And we've had to do a lot of work internally to sort of make sure that we're, we're getting everything that we need to run business, but there's no sort of bells and whistles in terms of gold-plated doorknobs or anything like that. Um, so it's very functional, very flexible, um, and, and obviously there's a business case that backs that up. That development will result in a convention space which can cope with a dinner for 2,300 people and more for a conference. Efforts are being made to maintain as much of the history as possible, keeping the old brick facades and, as project manager Lloyd Dunn explains, reusing heritage buildings. We've moved the, uh, the gatehouse from this location and it's the oldest building on site, built in 1909, and it used to be the gate into the actual um, grounds. But obviously as we expanded it sort of lost its function. So we've taken it now to wrap it in with the heritage buildings that wrap around the oval and it's now going to act as a gate onto the oval so it gets back Unlike the much larger Brisbane and Conference Exhibition Centre, Brendan Christou says the RNA is not relying on the government to pay for this development. Instead, it's secured a state loan. For us, being a, an association, um, we, we have a government loan but we very much are funding this ourselves so we have to pay the loan back, we've got to pay interest on it. So it, it very much needs to stack up with a business case. That's very different to most other uh, convention centres around the world. So you're looking to actually have a commercial return then on this investment as opposed to just an operating surplus? Yeah, very much. Helping that business case is the fact the RNA is not for profit and because it's registered as a charity doesn't pay tax. But some convention centres have been developed successfully using a mixture of private and public funding. It's the model being suggested for the Christchurch Centre after the release of the blueprint for the Central Business District. A professor in tourism at Melbourne's Victoria University, Brian King, sets out how the funding for the centre in his city was achieved. 
The most recent development, which is the Melbourne Convention Exhibition Centre, which opened in 2009, that was a public-private partnership between Multiplex and the Plenary Group, and it did involve uh, from the state uh, about $350 million investment. So it, it had public money as part of a, a mix with the private sector. Brian King says the land is publicly owned and the public money came not only from the Victorian state government but from the city of Melbourne as well. The private investor, a business called the Plenary Group, runs the whole precinct, which includes in a hotel, shops and restaurant areas. The group also has a contract to maintain the facility and there's an ongoing payment for the use of the centre. The security and cleaning contracts are held privately and the group is said to have also off-sold some of its debt to organisations such as superannuation funds to offset some of its financial commitments. Like many other convention centres, Melbourne makes the most of its waterfront setting and close links to the city. It has state-of-the-art facilities such as seating that can drop into the floor at the touch of a button. It has 52 meeting rooms, a grand banquet area and plenary meeting space that can cater for up to 5,500 people. But as staff member Angelique Dingle showed me around, the standout feature was the site. You can basically have a bird's eye view of, of all of Melbourne um, looking right out down to the other side of the Yarra. So it gives you a perspective of the city that you're in. And also, I guess, if you're a tourist that's got straight off the plane coming to a convention, it makes you want to go out and experience the city as well. So. And there's a, a footbridge right in front of the centre as well. Yeah, yeah, so that links straight through basically to Southern Cross Station and also to another tram stop on the other side of the bridge. And then straight through here along the water is um, South Wharf Promenade, which is Melbourne's newest area for restaurants and bars and also a shopping precinct as well. It's estimated the Exhibition and Convention Centre will bring over $200 million into the state in 2012-13 and host 21 international and 42 national conventions. The conference venue was built right next to a major exhibition space opened in the mid-1990s and the complex is pretty much booked out for the next three years, thanks in part to the closure of the centre in Sydney at the end of next year as it also undergoes an upgrade. The chief executive of the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre, Peter King, says his exhibition space needs further expansion as well and he needs to make the case for more public money. It's not just about the tourism, it's not even just about the delegates and the visitation. This industry is built around knowledge transfer and education and networking and we've had some great evidence recently of some announcements made here in the last couple of weeks around uh, some medical advancements that are taking place and getting these people together has an, you know, we are an enormous community asset and there are substantial economic models that suggest that we we drive huge uh, return to the cities and to the states. But beyond that, there's this great ability to get people together and to facilitate the exchange of information and for the betterment of whatever particular business it might be. So we need to be conveying those messages a lot because it's not generally understood by a lot of people. And it, you know, when you're looking at just a straight-out capital investment of a an exhibition centre versus a hospital or a road or whatever. You know, it's in, in a clinical sense, it's, it's, it's hard from a financial perspective to make that call. But 
beyond just that straight capital investment. We we offer so much more, and, and, and it's such a long term benefit to the city that uh, we need to be selling those messages a lot more. But how confident is the industry of bookings in the years to come? The global financial crisis had a severe effect on tourism generally, and in particular, business-related travel. However, figures from Tourism Research Australia show that after downturns in 2009 and 2010, business event visitor numbers last year were higher than before the crisis. Last year, those business visitors spent nearly $10 billion in Australia, and on average, spend 55% more than other sorts of travellers. Many cities trade on the links they have with local businesses, be it agriculture and mining in Brisbane, wine in Adelaide, or medical research in Melbourne, as Brian King outlines. The bulk of our convention-related activity is in the fields of medical science, pharmaceuticals, that type of area. But while Australia is experiencing growth in business tourism, that isn't the case in New Zealand. Visitor surveys by what was then the Ministry of Economic Development show the number of business tourists as static last year. A professor of tourism at the Auckland University of Technology and a director of the New Zealand Tourism Research Institute, Simon Milne, says it's not just the number of meetings, but the size as well that has changed. While we've seen a considerable growth in international conference and congress activity over the last decade, most of that growth occurred early in the 2000 period.、Uh, by about 2007, the growth sort of stabilised, and since then we've really seen very little increase in international numbers of conventions and congress. Uh, what we've seen over time is also a trend towards smaller meetings. So, if we look overall at con- congress and conference activity globally, what we see is the fastest growth happening in meetings that have between 50 and 250 participants. We're not talking about the large-scale congresses of over a thousand, two thousand people actually growing significantly. So, in a sense, the competitive market has got a lot tighter. While numbers of conferences have stagnated in recent years, we've also seen cities and nations investing a lot more money to to attract those congresses and conferences. So we have a a very tight competitive environment. That competitive environment is obviously also shaped by the global economic situation, and I don't think anyone is arguing that that's going to disappear in the near future. So you could argue that at the moment, Auckland as a site for a national convention centre. Is coming into the market at a at a rather difficult time. Not only has the Brisbane Convention Centre increased facilities catering to gatherings in the hundreds, but Adelaide has also noticed the move in some sectors towards smaller meetings. In the last financial year, while the number of meetings hosted by the centre was around the average figure of recent years, the number of larger international meetings halved from ten to five. The growth area was for smaller meetings of up to 500 people. Convention centre management in Adelaide say there's been a drop in the domestic market, with reports that organisers are sometimes struggling to get delegate numbers. In Melbourne, Brian King says the likes of Sydney and his city are now looking to compete with the major cities in Asia, and he sees the future attracting delegates from new markets such as China or India. Less the way of doing business really moves away from face to face, and somehow becomes boutique and. Just small groups.、Uh, I think we'll still have the the Amways of India and China, 
that are mega celebrations bringing large numbers of people together, I think that'll still be happening and growing, unless we have peak oil or, or something that really um, just undermines it completely. The head of the School of Tourism at Queensland University, Steve Craig-Smith, is also upbeat about the potential for the industry in Australia at least. He says there are worries over the carbon footprint associated with travel and the growing use of technology-based interactions such as web-based seminars, but he still thinks it's human nature for people to want to get together in person. Uh, People like to see people and basically, as they say in China, touch flesh shake hands, uh, sit around the table uh, and, and actually get to know them better and that, that is considered as preferable to a lot of this electronic media. So if you want to just say what's happening down the corner in the office, the S and email is fine, but if you're really going to try and sell something it's often better to, to have people come or you go to them and, and show the goods as it were. Adelaide lays claim to the first purpose-built convention centre in Australia with a building put up in the late 80s. It was followed by another bigger building, built in 2000, alongside the first structure. Now another significant redevelopment is underway, one which the centre's Director of Finance, Chris Stubbs, believes will deliver both an increase in capacity and a greater focus on the river that flows in front of the facilities. We started really to say, well, why turn our back to the torrents? You know, let's make it a postcard image. It's lovely out here. Yeah. So this uh, promenade was built when the 2000 extension was done, and it was always planned that there'd be restaurants along here, and but due to them running out of funding, it sort of just goes to a dead end. And, you know, but whereas now with our next... Our first stage of uh, extension, this will now take you out to the bridge. So it will become a a walkway uh, and we're hoping that this will bring the people here. The first stage of the state-backed redevelopment will cost 210 million Australian dollars and part of the new building will stretch over the railway lines that run into the station next door. The building engineering manager, Basil Hunger, outlines how the new building will add to the existing 20 or so meeting rooms and halls, the largest of which can already cope with as many as 5,000 delegates. And so how many stories is this new building here? Three stories. Yeah, sorry. It's got a boardroom, it's got uh, six meeting rooms uh, and the main hall. Building work started in March this year and it's due to be completed in about two and a half years' time. The next stage will then get underway at a cost of $140 million with a completion date of 2017. Chris Stubbs says as a smaller city, Adelaide can't be seen to trail behind the big cities. Adelaide in particular is is fighting a very fierce competition from the eastern seaboard Um, whilst we still try to get international events our uh, main target is a lot of national conferences and for us a client that um, may be one of many events that happen in Sydney or Melbourne um, 3,000 to 5,000 delegate they'll they'll occupy the whole venue so for a client it's that feeling of um, you know owning the whole business for their event. The State Treasurer, Jack Snelling, says the investment by the Government of South Australia has paid off in domestic and international visitors. And it's been enormously successful in promoting our state 
uh, encouraging international uh, business uh, uh, and other um, uh, visitors to our state uh, who then often return to South Australia for holidays, having attended a, a conference here. So it's been, a, it's been a, an initial investment which has paid quite um, substantial dividends to the state. The marketers trying to attract those visitors speak of selling an experience, a whole package, rather than just providing top-quality meeting rooms and auditoriums. In the last couple of months, Tourism New Zealand has launched a Beyond Convention campaign to try to convince potential business visitors there is more on offer here than if the event was held elsewhere. The three state-backed convention centres visited by Insight have a similar strategy. All are aiming to sell the city and the state so that economic benefits will flow from not just one visit but from repeat trips or maybe add-on holiday time. To showcase the city, all three are built on river, waterfronts and prime central locations. But they don't stand on their own. They've developed, or are working to develop, precincts that include waterside promenades, hotels, restaurants, and in the case of Brisbane, art galleries, a museum, and along with Adelaide, a performance venue. For the Chief Executive Officer of Brisbane's Royal National Agricultural Association, Brendan Christou, the focus is not only on heritage and the new facility, but the area around the site. Um, I guess the point of difference for us is the, the uniqueness of the precinct. So it's not just the building, it's, it's the, you know, for any events that want to have something that's a little bit, um, that's a bit more character to it, I guess that's where we sort of come to the fore. So there's a lot to do around the area and we, we sort of corner the valley which is sort of the, the music hub of Brisbane and the entertainment quarter of Brisbane. Uh, so you get a very different feel for this precinct than you do at, uh, at, at uh, the BCEC. Adelaide's precinct will include the casino, a theatre and links to the nearby stadium. The state treasurer, Jack Snelling, says the redevelopment of the riverfront will be an asset to Adelaide, not just an added attraction for the convention centre. The government's making a substantial investment, what we call the Riverbank Precinct, which is really from the Festival Theatre right down to the Morford Street Bridge where the convention centre is. Uh, we see that as becoming a, an entertainment hub for the, for the city, similar to examples interstate. We're also making a substantial investment in a redevelopment of the Adelaide Oval. There will be a footbridge connecting the Adelaide Oval to the Riverbank Precinct. So we really see it as being a focal point for what we want to turn into is a truly vibrant city. As thoughts emerged over that riverbanked precinct, links started to be made between future tax arrangements for the Sky City Casino in Adelaide and the development. In New Zealand, an inquiry is still underway into the preferred developer selection process that resulted in Sky City being chosen for its plans for Auckland. That scheme wouldn't involve any public money, but would require the government agreeing to increase the cap number of gaming tables and poker machines and an extension to the existing casino licence beyond its current renewal date of 2021. But in Adelaide, Jack Snanning is clear he never received a formal request. Well, they haven't explicitly come to me with a proposal, but in some of their public comments they had suggested that the government might be prepared to give them a concessional tax arrangement in exchange for an investment. But I made it very, very clear from all, in all my meetings with them and my public statements that that would not be the case. We will uh, negotiate tax arrangements in their own right. We'll have tax arrangements which are fair on Sky City. I'm very keen to ensure that... Uh, the casino and other pokey machine venues, so our, our pubs and clubs 
uh, essentially treated on a, on a fairly equal footing and from there Sky City can make its own decisions about what it wants to do with regard to, to an investment expanding the casino or, or, or providing a, a larger entertainment venue there. A director of the New Zealand Tourism Research Institute, Simon Milne, believes elements such as where a convention centre is sited and how it and its precinct are designed says something to the world about a city. He says other cities have endeavoured to attract attention. To me, the standout example is Vancouver. That is a a city which we would argue would be a competitor for us in the international congress uh, and conference sector. It's a city that's invested a large amount of money in a convention centre on the waterfront and has incorporated into that design a number of really interesting and innovative features. A, A grass roof, a roof that features over 300 native plants, uh, a facility that can handle large congresses but is also able to handle the smaller satellite type meetings. I think the real thing about the the Vancouver Congress Centre that really I think uh, has made it stand out is is the design feature. It really has been seen as a chance to present the, the, the city on an international stage. The Adelaide Convention Centre says their prime purpose is to advertise the state to the rest of Australia and the world. The financial director, Chris Stubbs, is clear that this is a reason why successive state governments of different political flavours have been prepared to put public money into the centre. Indeed, the state treasurer, Jack Snelling, says the investment in the centre and creating an entertainment hub is all about competing with the big cities to the east, not just for conferences, but for residents. But we'd need to work very hard to make sure that uh, Adelaide's seen as being a venue, a place people want to visit. Uh, um, tourism is very important uh, to, uh, to the South Australian economy, um, but we also want pe- South Australia to be a great place to live. Um, one of the uh, issues which we have contended with over the last 20 or 30 years is that we tend, uh, we do lose large numbers of our young people to find you know, career and job opportunities interstate, and we think that uh, having a vibrant uh, a city, a vibrant city, a vibrant nightlife, uh, great entertainment opportunities, uh, great job and career opportunities are all connected um, to um, to make sure that South Australia's best and brightest uh, stay here and feel that this is somewhere which uh, where they can pursue their careers, raise their families. But with so many convention centres expanding and redeveloping, or having just expanded, can the spending be justified? Queensland University's Steve Craig-Smith says there were some questions raised when the Brisbane Centre announced its new wing about the possibility of oversupply. Often what you find is which is the chicken and the egg. Um, Some of us were quite surprised in some ways that we were actually adding to what are very good conference facilities on South Bank by having these new facilities. Um, And also it's true to say that the Gold Coast has now opened them up and they are in North Queensland and everyone's actually going for them. And there is a danger, there's undoubtedly a danger that in actual fact supply could outstrip demand. But on the other hand, um, it is from what we see anyhow, still a growing industry. Mr Craig Smith believes it's important to keep the public informed about what is happening and to be open about the planning processes and the benefits that will hopefully flow from attracting potentially high-spending visitors. Often people are wary about spending a lot of money to attract and support events when the returns aren't clear or there are suspicions that only a few sectors of the economy benefit. 
A lot of people in the industry will say that in actual fact it does pay for itself. However, it, they're not getting a very good message across to Mr. and Mrs. Average in the street because very often I'm bombarded by people who are saying that so much is being spent on this, what are we getting out of it? And who is getting something out of it? So it's not just what's coming back, but to whom is it going? Many regard an element such as a major conference centre as part of a city's infrastructure, and as such, Professor Brian King would like to see careful planning in any new venture. This is about having a broad appeal that's not dumbing down. So it's about a cultural experience as well as an entertainment experience. So how will the precinct in Auckland convey, you know, global business city with the high quality service, um, yes, engaging entertainment, but uh, livable, cultural, you know, deeper cultural experience as well. So, and combining these elements, a lot of it's about design, it's about integrity, it's about bringing the best talent together. And uh, I mean, the, the cautionary I'd have is that there's, if there's no government money, the less government money, the less capacity you've got to have you know the public interest being looked after. Simon Milne would like debate in New Zealand over whether an international convention centre is still relevant as he argues its success or failure will have wider implications. It doesn't just matter from a financial perspective we're talking about taking a, a part of our city part of our, our sort of urban fabric and committing it to a particular type of purpose. Uh, if that becomes a white elephant, if that does not, not perform well, uh, that has a series of, of ramifications for our urban environment, for our, for our urban economy, and for our city and how, it, how it's presenting itself to the outside world. Um, we've had these debates around stadiums. Uh, we've, we also have these debates around uh, motorways. You know, are we pushing for something which is now perhaps part of the past? But Australian tourism academic Steve Craig-Smith is certain no self-respecting country should be without a sizeable convention centre. The argument is that for the point of view of the status of the country, you know, if the country has got a first-class international convention centre, all of a sudden they're in some sort of league table. If they don't have one, they're in a league table, but at the very bottom. So there's a certain element, I guess, almost of national pride as well. The chief executive of Melbourne's Convention and Exhibition Centre, Peter King, is extremely positive about the future of his industry and has no worries about oversupply. But he does think there are challenges ahead about how such facilities are used, and it's not just all about drumming up business. There's an opportunity over in the future to consider how we better engage with our local communities, for example. It's sort of a different way to look at, um, as opposed to just chasing conferences and international conventions, and how do we actually utilise the space that we've got. I'm Philippa Tolley, and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by Don Rood with technical production by Chris Adams.